Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are honored to be joined by David Sargsyan, an attorney from Armenia. And the story of how we ended up inviting David to the podcast is, is an interesting one. I've been interested in Armenia for a long time, variety of, of factors uh, involving its history, involving some of my, my friends who have our Armenian ancestry. And when I was thinking of countries that I wanted to, to learn more about and that, and that I thought our, our listeners would want to learn about, I, I set about trying to find a, an Armenian attorney and was lucky enough to, to find someone who's not only an Armenian lawyer who has graciously agreed to be on the podcast, but also a fellow alumnus of the University of Notre Dame. David holds uh, an LLM from Notre Dame. And I just discovered during our initial chit chat that he's a, a fellow a fan of Football Club Barcelona. So makes me even happier to, to have uh, stumbled upon him. So David, welcome to Global Law and Business. Thank you very much. And I am really honored to be first comer from, from Armenia, but I must say there are a lot of good lawyers around here. So you need to look up for the market and I don't want to monopolize this podcast. So I hope that this will open up the room for uh, other lawyers to join in and uh, provide their experience and expertise of, of Armenia. It's really a very exciting market, very small one, but we are all friends here, good competitors, and we are trying to break up the standards to the Western one to have a best serve for this market. Thank you again for this opportunity. And uh, as you mentioned, yeah, we are both fighting Irish. So you can, you can really see that I'm, I'm one of the fighting Irish uh, fellows in, uh, from Notre Dame. And I'm a graduate of Notre Dame back in 1997-98, it was the LM program. And um, before that, I, I, I graduated from Yerevan State University Law School. And I was actually doing my master's on political science and international relations in the American University of Armenia, located in Yerevan during those years. But then I took a break and uh, joined Notre Dame community, which was one of the best years spent both on academic level and on networking with various students, cultural experience, etc. And I was lucky enough to have a good uh, year in Notre Dame, uh, to have a diploma with some honors. And even I was able to get the competition to join the International 
tribunal for former Yugoslavia in Den Haag in in um, in, in Netherlands. So uh, back then uh, I was back to Armenia uh, after one year in Den Haag, and it was really very exciting experience. Although I'm not a criminal lawyer <laughs> because I decided not to go in that field. And I, my major was, of course, international law. And then back in Armenia, I decided to finish the American University of Armenia and get my second master's there. So I got both LLM from Notre Dame and master's from American University of Armenia on political science and international relations. I mostly focus in uh, private law and uh, my work experience mostly with Amelia Group, with Amelia itself, which is uh, one of the renowned advisory boutiques in Armenia. And uh, it has become later on a major financial advisory group. And I will explain in detail. But prior to that, I was used to work on different technical assistance projects under USAID or EU funding. And that was a good experience as well, working with American lawyers in Armenia. And we worked on developing uh, different branches of legislation. Mostly we focused on areas of uh, capital market development in Armenia, on insolvency legislation, as well as, as well as on EU part, it was mostly focused on development of the civil service legislation in Armenia. So it was a you know, a wide variety of knowledge, skills, and experience I've tried to accommodate after my study in US. And uh, thank, uh, uh, I, I must say that uh, for me, it's kind of, you know, uh, I, I was used to say that there is an American dream, but there should be Armenian dream too. So I hope that uh, by my uh, career development, by my uh, work here, and by my focus on the Armenian market, I will prove to many, my fellows here, my fellow friends, my family, and you know, my, my partners and my co-workers that there is Armenian dream to follow. And you can have that dream done in your country because there are a lot of people who are looking maybe outside of their markets. Uh, I think that there is enough work and enough success to register locally. So. After um, my study and uh, coming back to Armenia in 1998 and working on some technical projects, finally in 2004, I joined Amelia as a partner to develop and work on the legal practice. And uh, thanks to my partners in Amelia, thanks to my colleagues and my uh, fellow legal team, we have been successful enough to develop one of the best practices in the country and to establish new standards for the legal profession. And I'm proud to be part of that team. So basically uh, already for 19, uh, 15 and more years, I'm part of Amelia. And the group itself is includes a major, one of the biggest banks in Armenia called Amelia Bank. And I am there act as a legal director, but my focus mostly of course on Amelia advisory part, which works on major transactions in the country and we are proud to be part of many renowned transactions in this part of the world. So this is like small introduction on myself. Uh, I'm, um, I have a wife, two kids, one who, who is uh, becoming professional football soccer player or in, uh, in American culture known as a soccer 
and um, let's see how it will go. So I'm I'm becoming now uh, specialized in the sports law as well, which I never thought of being specialized. So <laughs> that's another part of uh, you know experience I need to have, and uh, I, I'm I'm studying now. David, it's really great to have you on the podcast and to hear your experience. Certainly, your your time frame that you've been active is extremely interesting uh, from a historical perspective. A lot of us uh, in the U.S. Uh, and elsewhere, you know, we we track developments all around the world. We we pay attention to which governments are in charge. Uh, you know what when the lines are crossed. Uh, certainly, your area of the world has been uh, very interesting in the last thirty years, to say the least. So let's focus for a few minutes on uh, on Armenia's history, the entire Caucasus region. Um, could you provide us a little overview of the country's situation, uh, you know, some of its economic issues, some of its trade issues, uh, anything from a, a political perspective or a, or a business perspective that you think is, is important for people who are looking at Armenia as a market who might want to come and do business there? Uh, thank you, Jonathan. And uh, yes, uh, that's one of the main uh, issues I would like to present and thank you for the question because uh, Armenia is such a small landlocked country that many, many businesses uh, would not be interested or would not even think of Armenia being a place to invest. But in my opinion, it's one of the best, uh, you know, places to consider. And Armenia is, uh, as I stated, is landlocked, a former Soviet Republic, which is located like at the outskirts of, of Europe, if, if I may say, and is uh, neighboring to Georgia, Azerbaijan, Iran, and Turkey. And uh, with very hard history, but still uh, being independent country, which looks for the future development uh, within the peace with the neighbors, within the development of the region. We have passed through war, as you know, uh, as you might have might have heard, it's uh, becoming the first uh, year after the first uh, Karabakh war. I would not like to focus on that because now we are having peace agenda. So it's very important that that peace agenda would uh, evolve and work and uh, develop into the, you know, uh, eternal peace and eternal uh, development for the overall region. As you see from the neighboring country's name, it's it's quite a sophisticated region, both on geopolitics and economics, but uh, we better focus on the economics. And for many uh, might think that Armenia is located on the crossroads of potential, uh, you know, maybe disputes or potential turmoil. But for me, in my understanding, Armenia is located on the crossroads of the Silk Road which means that it uh, might be the place where the economic interest can be matched and can be properly developed into the uh, interest of all parties involved. So therefore, I think that uh, from that perspective, it's a very interesting place to consider. We are having actually main trade relationships with uh, countries of the region, uh, giants uh, such as Russia, one of the major uh, trade partners. We have a big exposure to China. We, we are working with the China. There are several infrastructural projects where Chinese uh, investment is uh, already visible. We are having, of course, the major trade partner is neighboring Georgia. There are some relationship with Iran as well, considering that this 
it's a neighbor, and uh, they are frozen relationship with Azerbaijan and Turkey due to the to the situation with Nagorno-Karabakh. But we hope that this situation will develop into the opening of transportation with both countries, which will basically lead to the economic growth and to the economic partnering with different businesses from the region. As uh, the country, the, the, we are always used to say it, we, we say it in our media group, in our media company, that the main asset of our media are people. So I must say that the main asset of Armenia are the people, the education we have here, the experience we have here, and the devotion and loyalty of the people who serve on different businesses we have here. For the same time, on the main economic areas, I, I need to tell that we have a major mining projects in the country. We have a very interesting uh, areas uh, for development uh, in the infrastructure. There is a major project called North-South connecting the countries of the region, which might be interest for the Caucasus as well. Uh, and uh, real estate development, they are major part of the economy growing. Of course, we have a now IT system growing. Armenians are very good into I, in the IT uh, area, for example, Piscard, one of the major uh, players now, of uh, which have been developed into the uh, IPO company, uh, has originated from Yerevan, from Armenia. It's uh, it was uh, coming from here. We have a major uh, development. Are is and the good industry wise is are the banks in Armenia, which is again very interesting place to invest, and um, those are considered uh, as a best uh, developed and uh, regulated industry in the country. We have now major focus on that agriculture, which is uh, more in relation to the uh, extensive agriculture, redeveloping, recultivating. And uh, there is a specific, of course, attention on ecological matters because of the mining being one of the major sectors of the economy. So I would might be limited to this. There are a lot of to think and to invest. And of course, uh, there is always area for uh, consideration of uh, uh, greenfield projects in the country related to IP. David, you you brought up the the Silk Road, and and you specifically addressed China and how it is one of the major trading partners, and and not only that, it's it's actually participating in important projects in Armenia. Both Jonathan and and, and I have have spent time in China. We we are very interested in in not only what happens in China, but in its uh, relationships with, with other countries in the, in the world and how it is perceived. And, and it's always very interesting to, to talk to people um, from other countries who, who can help us understand uh, how, how China is perceived. Obviously, I, th I think it's fair to say that at least in many countries, many regions in the world, uh, perceptions of China are complex, perhaps even I don't know if we can say contradictory, but but there's definitely a mix of of emotions that that China elicits in in people. So um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about how China is is perceived in Armenia. Uh, obviously, I mean Armenia has had, uh, I'm sure, a relationship uh, with with China for a long time, perhaps 
um, in, in years past as part of the Soviet Union. I mean, obviously, the Soviet Union and China had its its own relationship, its own complex relationship. And I'm sure there was impact on, on how people in Armenia perceived China. And then, of course, uh, over time, there, there's been the, you know, not now as a once again, as an independent nation, it, it, it has to have this relationship with China on its own terms. So I'm just curious, um, what does the average Armenian think about China? Are the impressions more positive than negative? Are some of the concerns that people have in other countries about China shared in Armenia? Or is there more a feeling that it is a place that uh, can offer opportunities and can offer cooperation rather than, than a threat? Well, I assume the question implies that uh, in many countries, the soft power of investment of China is becoming the political agenda for the for that specific country. Uh, I don't think that we have the same situation here, and I don't think that we have we are facing such a threat or such an understanding of Chinese investment. We are looking for that investment, and we are looking not only for Chinese investment. Our, our Armenia needs both internal and external investment in different projects. Uh, but as you have touched uh, China, I don't think there is any negative implications on any investments uh, which are done by the Chinese in this country. And uh, we even you know, experience that the Chinese investment raises the competitiveness of the Armenian businesses. For example, um, I was uh, retained on one of the projects which Relates to the development of the major uh, real estate project, uh, which is multi-million project. And uh, as you understand, for the market of around three million people, multi-million projects are quite big, sizable projects. So uh, when uh, the the project owner was running the uh, tender in relation to the construction companies, he was impressed by the quality of the papers and by the quality of work which was produced by one, by one of the Chinese-owned construction companies locally. And it was based on the experience of the Chinese construction here. There is a major construction done for the Chinese school in Yerevan, which is very impressive. And a Chinese uh, uh, embassy, which is one of the biggest uh, in, in the region. So we, we have seen that there is a quality, there is a timing, and there is a loyalty to the project, which was presumed by this potential investor. So my understanding is that the overall impression is like that. And uh, people, uh, they, they, they see the quality for the prices paid and they see the loyalty as well as devotion to completion of the project. And therefore, in my understanding, uh, we do not have such a threat as you might uh, see that any soft economy present might somehow become a local threat for some politics or for some economic interest within the country. I think Chinese investment is enriching our local market and it makes it more competitive and triggers both domestic and international investments from other sources. So I assume that um, we, we have no such uh, negative implications we do not face it and hopefully will not face it in the future. David, let's talk for a minute about Armenian culture. Uh, one of my best friends here in the United States uh, also has Armenian heritage. And so when uh, we became good friends many years ago, I started to learn a little bit about Armenia's history 
I'd love to hear more about what Armenia looks like today. What is, uh, what are some normal things? Uh, I mean, even, even, uh, you know, what kind of things you all enjoy? I know you said you're at the, the crossroads of so many interesting countries. So you must have influences from the North, South, East and West. And, and so if you, I said, what was a typical, uh, what's our, our typical Armenian like? Can you tell us a little bit more about you, your friends, your neighbors, just so we can understand your your world viewpoint and and some things that are that are important to you? Well, there, there are so many to say on, on this question that several podcasts will, will be needed, but I will try to, to to be precise. Although you know, for lawyers to be precise, it's 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 very difficult because you need to bring a lot of arguments to to support your position. But you know. Um, I'm grown in an Armenian family, but I'm grown in Russian environment because I attended to Russian school. So the, the, the main, uh, you know, the, during the Soviet time, it was one of the best quality schools to go. So it was a Russian school. For the same time, all my thinking, all my, you know, uh, language and uh, linguistic thinking was mostly Armenian until I got to, to know the English to, to, to understand the English and to learn the, English. So basically, you know, that is the, I'm the mix of that culture. I'm thinking mostly in English terms because it's, for me, the linguistic thinking, English uh, being very precise language, uh, one uh, small English sentence is translated into Armenian several sentences. So therefore, it's uh, it's easier for me, for for example, to think in English. For the same time, I, I, I have a major Russian culture in myself because I, I read a lot of in Russian. And I was uh, kind of educated on Russian, you know, classics, etc., etc. For the same time, uh, I'm, I'm I'm Armenian, and I enjoy the Armenian culture. So this is the mix which we have in Armenia, because and this is coming with you know a lot of Syrian Armenians here, Lebanese Armenians here, a lot of people coming across with, with, who are bringing their Eastern Western mixed culture into the uh, Armenian reality. And if you walk. At the streets of Yerevan, you will enjoy listening Russian speech. You will enjoy listening diaspora speech. You will enjoy listening Arabic speech, Persian, etc., etc. So this is kind of mix in the country, which is mostly monoethnic because ninety some percent uh, of the population is Armenian, and the people are trying and they are devoted to that multicultural relations. For the same time, um, I would assume that uh, what, what is about uh, Armenia as being different is the local people, because uh, you will face that, uh, you know, I'm always uh, asked why I would not live abroad where the market is bigger, you can have a better success, you can be part of a multinational law firm, etc., etc. But, you know, there is some point of the culture which keeps me very local, and that is the relations between people, between friends, between the families. With all due respect, there are certain standards you need to keep up. For example, uh, when when you are in, um, for example, U.S. or in other Western country, you you or you respect so much the privacy of the other person that you most probably will not call after 10 p.m. or you will not visit anyone after 11 p.m. Here, it's very different. I would not even think about going to my friend's place at the one of the midnight or, you know, at midnight and to ask him to give me some food or to sit and discuss something. 
So this is very different from the the, the other uh, part of the world, which I enjoy very much because I can easily go and call my friend in the midnight and spend the time on nothing, just spend the time on nothing. So this is uh, the difference I, I do enjoy. And of course, um, we have very high service for hospitality. That's one of the investment areas I have not touched, but that is very developing in Armenia. The high standards of services on Horeca, hotels, restaurants, ca cafe, and I, I, I invite you to Armenia, you will definitely enjoy that part of the trip, and which is good for the price and the quality. And that brings people back to Armenia to visit again, both being uh, served with the good fruit for a good price and uh, good, uh, you know, touristic places to, to, to see the history of the region. Uh, David, you, you touched upon the, the Armenian diaspora in your in your last uh, intervention and and going even earlier, you, you talked about people being being one of the assets of, of, of Armenia, if not the most important asset. And I, and I think that at least based on, on my own interactions, then it, it seems also in, in Jonathan's case, um, certainly the the Armenians uh, that we have been exposed to here in the United States and elsewhere have have done a very very good job of of demonstrating the truth of of what you just said. So I'd, I'd like to to talk a little bit more about the diaspora. It would be interesting to hear how that diaspora is perceived in Armenia itself. Right, this is always an, an interesting topic here in the United States. Of course, we have some very strong communities: uh, the Irish, the Italians, uh, who are very proud of their cultures. It's, it's been my experience, at least, that going to places like Ireland, going to places like Italy, perhaps this isn't seen as such a big deal. Um, the fact that there are many people with this background in, in, in another country and they might say, well, yeah, and then there's a lot of people in other countries as well. Right. So it's just a different perception. So that, that would be the, the first part of the question. You know, what's the perception of the diaspora in Armenia itself? And, and second, to what extent is there a role for the diaspora to play in uh, economic development, I mean, obviously, we know that at, at some level there there's a role to be played. Obviously, there's there's the cultural connection, and we see that uh, throughout the world. Obviously, um, places like China, places like Vietnam, you you do see ethnic Chinese, ethnic Vietnamese that that go back and open businesses. I mean, that's that's a given that that's going to happen. But I wonder if perhaps there is a, a deeper role that the diaspora can play or is playing in the growth of the of the Armenian economy. Uh, thank you, Fred, for this question. Indeed, uh, it's uh, one of the main assets we have, as I stated before. And, you know, uh, my uh, perception and my view of my country's development would be that we are, look, we are proud being local, but going global. So my perception would be that still being local here, we are, we are, we are really global. So uh, it's, it's very difficult, difficult to achieve in my understanding, but that should be something we, we should adhere to and try to, 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 to set us uh, as, you know, milestones to, uh, to get there. Uh, because, you know, in the landlocked country of around 3 million, it's very difficult to succeed globally. But if we will establish proper standards, I think many businesses would originate from here and become global. And to that extent, I think the diaspora role for myself, and I, I can talk only for myself, not uh, others, and I hope that many would share my position, 
that the diaspora is not a big project for Armenia. It's opportunity, it's a window to different cultures, and it's the door for diaspora to come in and to bring those cultures to enrich Armenian society and economy. And I view diaspora like that. Uh, as you might see, um, there, there are, of course, different figures, different populations, but uh, overall, Armenia, Armenians worldwide are around 10 million, and only around 3 million reside in Armenia proper. So that there is uh, much more people of Armenian origin around the globe. And I think that asset should be used mostly for the benefit uh, of economic growth in the country. Uh, I, I'm not the person to perceive that diaspora should be, you know, technical assistance project for the country. No, diaspora should be one of the investors. Diaspora should be perceived as a, you know, major and, you know, very important experience, knowledge database and networking to serve the goods of the country. If we talk on the country level, if we talk on the people level, then, you know, it's, it's even much more important that the culture which the diaspora have to be enrooted in very monoethnic country, to, to have uh, this monoethnic country, you know, open up to the world, which is success way if we want to become global. So my view of the diaspora is not a pocket, as I state, not a technical system, but as an equal partner whom we, we have to hear their needs, we have to understand their needs, and we have to accommodate the proper demands for them to enter our market. As for the Armenian country and people here, we need to help them to survive, to keep, to be still Armenian while working, you know, and uh, living abroad. So this is a very major challenge for us to tackle on both sides. And I do hope that Armenian diaspora and Armenian state uh, institutions have the same agenda as I expressed, which would bring the understanding of each other for the benefit of both the country and uh, diaspora. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting, but even on the linguistic side, it's, it's quite different. For example, my Armenian talking Armenian is quite different from the Armenian, which is talked, for example, by, by U.S. Armenians of Western origin. Uh, or by Lebanese Armenians, and my Armenian is closer to Persian Armenian, to Lebanese Armenian, to Syrian Armenian, but quite different from uh, diaspora uh, Western Armenian. In which case, you know, even that creates some gap which need, we need to fill because, as I stated, language, linguistic thinking is one of the major roots for the cultural differences. And we need to accommodate those differences into the positive side of it to enrich both culturally and economically on both sides. If, if I answer the, uh, your, your question, that's how I view the role of both diaspora and country having such diaspora. That's great, David. Thank you for that. Obviously, I, I cannot let the opportunity pass to ask you about, about Notre Dame. You shared some of your outlook 
and your experiences. But one question that I have is, well, why Notre Dame in the in the first place? I mean, I'm obviously glad that you made that choice and we end up having the, this connection. But at the same time, we, we could say that it's not the best known university. Uh, I know that the university is working really hard on that. For example, um, while I was living in, in China, I did see the university start to Put a lot of effort into into recruiting uh, students from Asia, but that's a little bit a little bit later on in time. And certainly, when when I was there, probably the case when you were there, uh, the, the international contingent uh, was there, it was visible, but but not not huge. So so that does bring up the question. I mean, what attracted you to Notre Dame in the first place? And if you were talking to an Armenian or a student from, from another nationality, it doesn't even have to be Armenian, uh, and they were thinking of going to, to study abroad, going to study in the United States, what do you see as some of the benefits of studying at a place like Notre Dame as opposed to going to some of the, the better known universities out there? And of course, I'm not suggesting in any way that, uh, that our alma mater is a chopped liver, as they say. I mean, obviously, we, we, we both know that it, it does enjoy incredible name recognition here in the U.S. in large part because of, of the work of alumni. But still, you know, I, I, can, I can say that at least in places like, like China, the university has had to do uh, a lot of work to raise its profile. So again, the, the question is, why did you, especially back in the 1990s, uh, make that decision to to go to Notre Dame? I, I assume that you don't regret that choice. Uh, sure, Fred, thank you. I think that we both know answers why Notre Dame. So basically, you know, it's a, it was kind of competition and I went through that competition and Notre Dame was located as a school and I was very happy to accommodate that election. Uh, you know, I mean, mm, for, for the lawyers and for the law school, uh, I think the important answer why this law school is tradition. So this is the school with tradition. So therefore, you know, the, the, the short answer to that would be the tradition. Uh, the, the, you know, longer answer and the broader answer would be that being in Notre Dame at the master's level, you enjoy both, you know, multicultural environment. And I mean that not that U.S. itself is multicultural country because of a lot of ethnicity, nationality, people uh, studying and working there, but because indeed the master's class was the class of multicultural people. We had people from Zaire, from Egypt, from South Africa. Uh, we had people from Russia, very different backgrounds. And you know, 90s is just the you know, uh, first years of independence after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So you can understand the uh, cultural shock I might have coming from the Soviet background to the market economy, to the school with such a tradition. So therefore, my answer is tradition. And the next level of the answer is, you know, cultural enrichment. You know, you might become good or bad lawyer, but when you have such a multicultural exposure, such a networking, you definitely grow up in your own values, in your own culture, in your own perception of your own values and values of other people and appreciating the values of other people to accommodate those and to be guided by those in your future steps of life. So that is very important that the tradition is kept there. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that tradition is kept there and that tradition will be serving many generations of the graduates of Notre Dame and not only law school. 
So that would be my answer. And of course, um, uh, then in, back in Notre Dame, I, I would say the only problematic issue was the weather during the winter. <laughs> and, you know, my graduation was in May and I invited my mother and I forgot to say and warn her that May is still winter in Notre Dame. <laughs> so it was a bit snowing even when she was attending the graduation ceremony. But, you know, it's, 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 it's really tradition, which I bear with me uh, the whole my life. And uh, I would like to share that tradition with many people who would like to get to know that tradition. I have to say, just to follow up, when I was um, studying law at Notre Dame, we we would take classes together with the master's contingent. You're right, it, it, was, a, it was a very international contingent. To this day, I have to say that within my, my group of close friends, some of my fellow students from 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 that group uh, are overrepresented. I mean, I, I made uh, lifelong friends from from Mexico, from Chile, uh, Canadian Armenian, as a matter of fact, which was one of my first exposures to to the culture. So I have to I, I agree. I mean, I I, I can I, and I can understand the the appeal. I mean, that certainly enhanced my my own experience uh, having the opportunity to study with with people from from different parts of the world. And I can imagine that being in the in the heart of that group must must be a, a special experience as well. Sure, and I need to uh, tell you that uh, there there were very few Armenians there, and I was I think the second Armenia Armenian student there, and it was uh, very you know uh, we, we were new to that community as Armenians. But what was interesting, the uh, football team and American football team of Notre Dame, and you know the. 70,000 stadium there, you know, this uh, huge exposure to the sports. The Notre Dame uh, football uh, has become the champions of the regular league when it, the coach was Armenian. I forgot his surname, but the first coach who brought Notre Dame to, to winning a title was Armenian. Arab Shigan, right? Yes, 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 right. <laughs> Right, right. My my dad was a student at Notre Dame back in back back in that time. So, <laughs> so you 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 indeed have a tradition. I am liking it for now. <laughs> You're starting it. Yeah, David. Let's turn back to the um, your work environment. I'd love to hear more about challenges you see that Armenian law firms are facing. Uh, what do you see as the the business environment changing? How are lawyers doing? Right now, uh, you said you, there are a lot of talented uh, lawyers in the country. Uh, how do you see them adapting to the changing business needs in Armenia? And uh, what does the future of the legal profession look like in Armenia? Well, I think that uh, the future of legal profession uh, is questioned by the digitalization of our life, not only in Armenia, but uh, are, I have heard that there are some robotics who are doing even first instance court claims uh, instead of humans. So <laughs> I don't know whether it's true or not, but there were some, you know, readings of that I, I, I came across. Uh, on talking the profession in Armenia, it's it's very respected profession. Uh, there is a very high competitive market uh, in Armenia because we, you know, like oil, gas and other, you know, features of other state, then we don't have a very much international presence here. So. There's no international law firms in Armenia, so the market is uh, kind of left to the local peers. And um, I need to state that uh, many young lawyers coming into the profession, they, they, they see the need to broaden their view on the profession. 
You cannot be successful if you have not broadened up yourself to the profession outside of the Armenian reality of the Armenian legal system. You need to understand other legal systems because we are young. We are young. We have just, you know, to, uh, on September 21st, we celebrated 30th anniversary of independence of Armenia. So our legal tradition and the profession is, is, is quite young. Although, you know, the, 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 the first, um, uh, legal books in Armenia were, you know, drafted, were published and were maintained many, many, many centuries ago. So therefore it's, uh, but for the modern legal tradition, we are, we are still young. Therefore, I think that the main issue faced by the youngsters is to think out of box. I would put like that, you know, in the countries with the continental system of the law, with Napoleonic, you know, system of the law, you need to think out of box because laws are written and it's very easy just to go and cite the relevant clause of the relevant law. It's much harder to explain how is the best to use that clause in the practice. So therefore, I would think that the challenge faced by many, many in Armenia is thinking out of box, is thinking out of the Armenian legal culture. If you will be able, will educate yourself into that, you will be successful. As for the profession itself, I think it's still, you know, although a lot of, you know, competition goes in IT, people are more going into the digital world and uh, professions required by the di digitalization of our life, still uh, people need lawyers. <laughs> so if you are the lawyer to provide non-standard solution, then you will succeed even in the small market. And I am proud and I am honored that I am surrounded with the partners and with the colleagues who are used to think out of box and who are used to provide unique solutions. Well, David, the, the, the time has flown and um, th there's definitely questions that, that we didn't get to that we'd like to get to. So hopefully we can we can have you have you on at, at a later time for for round round two. And, and continue our conversation. Uh, however, before we we, uh, we let you go this time, uh, I'd like to ask you if if you have any any recommendations for us and our and our listeners. Anything you've you've read recently? Anything you've you've watched? Uh, doesn't have to be anything too serious or or related to Armenia for for that matter. Just something that that you'd like to pass along. Well, Fred, thank you for that question. Really, it makes me think wider out of this uh, discussion we had. Well, you know, uh, for a long time, I was a board member at the uh, American Armenian Chamber of Commerce. So it was a, quite an experience. And, um, you know, during one of our dinner parties, I don't recall when, the, 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 the team, the executive team, has decided to award the board members with the books to read. So I was awarded with the book called Men Without Woman, offered by, uh, offer is uh, Haruki Murakami, who is a Japanese writer. So, you know, I took the book, there was a laughter on that. And, uh, you know, I, I told guys, uh, shall I pass this book to my wife or should I read it myself? So they were laughing on that. And they thought, well, you know, um, you need to read it. Okay, I, I thought I, I will read it. But 
I, I have not put my hands on it for several years. And I have just already recently when I'm becoming closer to my 50th. So therefore, I've, I've, I've tried to understand what, what the implications are there. And uh, when I was reading the novels there, um, I, I, I understood that really the life is very hard without women. And for the same time, I appreciated from the book and the, from the humor there that you will never understand what the woman wants. <laughs> so therefore, I would recommend to read it, but maybe we are closer to, you know, 15th, and uh, then maybe it will open up some more doors for you. I, I discussed some of the novels with my wife, and we understood each other well, but still, men will never understand the woman if they would like to keep something very secret. So this is this is what I would recommend. That's why we go for the easy things on this podcast, like global law and business. Sure. Jonathan, uh, what what do you have for us? Uh, any any more wisdom that that we can uh, glean? Yeah, you know, on the topic of men and women, actually, my article is from the Economist. It's called "Societies That Treat Women Badly Are Poorer and Less Stable." It's a very descriptive article, descriptive title for this article. Of course, this uh, focuses on uh, what's been happening in Afghanistan. Uh, the reason it came on my radar is one of our former guests, Valerie Hudson, and her group um, that she's been uh, her research group. Uh, the Women's Stats Project came in prominent because uh, they're citing the overall stability of a nation uh, compared to how its women are treated. And so there's a, if you're a visual person, there's a very interesting graph that has a line showing uh, countries, fragility of a country or stability of a country versus how sexist it is. And so very interesting uh, article, good, uh, not a, I wouldn't call it a long form article, but a good size article. Uh, certainly if you want to get more into the, uh, into the gender gaps in, uh, around the world and certainly some insights into what's happening in Afghanistan. Uh, again, I say now that the Taliban are, are back in control. So highly recommended in, in The Economist, societies that treat women badly are poorer and less stable. Fred, what about you? Roberto De Vido, who's an old friend of our law firm, is is publishing, I guess, a, a newsletter. I guess that that's 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 a description that I'm going to 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 give to it. Um, he just started recently, and the title of the of the publication is "The Jaded Cynic." But I'd like to specifically recommend the latest issue. It's very well written, but but in particular, what I like about it is it it. it discusses the the recent issue with the submarines and Australia and and France and and of course the accompanying announcement of this strategic alliance between the US the UK and Australia and he actually explained a lot of the context you know one of the things that i always think is important when considering history whether it's history at a at the macro level or whether it's at the micro level and then you're in your place of work or family you have to look at the whole story right you can't walk into the, the movie theater halfway through it and then expect to understand the movie and that's not my own analogy that's that's from from dan carlin great podcaster he used it recently but uh, applying that to 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 this particular controversy over the submarines there is a broader context there and it certainly helped to to educate me about some of the issues that were present because if you're if you're only learning about this now, it, it looks one way. But again, there's a lot more to tease out. And um, Roberto did a great job 
of doing that. So the Jaded Cynic issue number two, which came out on September 23rd, there's no title to it other than issue number two. With that, David, I'd like to, to thank you once again for joining us. Really enjoyed this conversation. Glad we we were able to, to put it all together. And uh, it did not disappoint. Uh, I had this curiosity about, about Armenia, about its economy, about its prospects. And then you certainly provided quite a bit of insight into that. So, so thank you. And we hope we can have you again as a guest. Thank you, friends. Thank you, Jonathan. And thank you for recommendations. I will definitely refer to those uh, to understand bigger picture of what is going on worldwide. And really, uh, I am honored to be here and uh, I would be definitely uh, delighted to join you in the future with some more stories from this part of the world. Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Stephen Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Music